First Peter chapter five, verses one through five. This isn't our only scripture reference today, but it is a, a big text that we'll be walking through together. Uh, it says, let's see here. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Uh, we are four weeks into a six-week series. It's an it's a actual series review, looking from a year and a half ago at the, the His Church series, where God just began the process of giving us a passion for His church that He is building. Uh, and then we went into about 33 weeks of 1 Corinthians studies. And so we were able to see how the truths of the His Church series were applied in a local body context in Corinth, Greece. Uh, and so we're just having a, a bit of a reminder of these principles as God has no doubt been pressing them into us. Uh, one of the big definitions of the local church has been given multiple times to you guys, but it goes like this. The local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of communion and baptism, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the Great Commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. We've been looking at multiple obligations that we have to the local church, but those obligations aren't in and of themselves some legalistic bondage trip that the elders have tried to put on you, the church, but rather we've examined the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and how he has purchased his church with his own precious blood because he's given such a cost to redeem us to himself and because he calls us his own, there's radical nobility there. Such blessing, such grace has been poured out to us that the New Testament gives us a response, a duty, a responsibility, a privilege to that grace. Many of them actually that can be lived out and to be fulfilled within the local body context. We've been looking the last three weeks that we are to be our brother's keeper. We have a duty and an obligation to consider one another on a daily, regular basis in order to stir up love and good works. That necessi necessitates the second thing, that we gather together for the regular uh, gatherings of this church. And that's not just a Sunday thing. That's the regular meetings as the early church set that out for us in continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. We are to steward our gifts, our spiritual gifts within the local body. Now, all of these uh, obligations, of course, they are for those who uh, meet two criteria. First of all, you're born again Christian. And secondly, you call this your church. And if you don't call this your church, you can apply this today to your home church. 
Uh, and so you've been given a gift, spiritual gift, at least one, maybe a set of gifts, and those are to be used within the local body. You've also been given resources and time and perhaps finances and possessions, and these things are all to be stewarded generously within the local body. Today we're going to look at two things. Uh, first of all, uh, that we are to organize under qualified leadership. We have a duty to be led by the elders and pastors of this flock, and we have a privilege to be led, nurtured, tended, and cared for by the elders. The elders have obligations and duties and responsibilities towards you as a member of this local congregation. And we're also going to look today that there's a, a duty to be disciplined for holiness and to discipline one another for holiness. And so our text today kind of kicks it off with this uh, understanding of shepherds and what their task is and what their reward is. The word shepherd is easily understood by the Israelites who had the Lord as their shepherd and pastor. They understood this. They referred to themselves as the sheep of his pastor. Isaiah tells us that the Lord tends his flock like a shepherd and he gathers the lambs into his arms and carries them close to his heart. There were shepherds of Israel who were understood as leaders who uh, led uh, as Moses shepherded Israel, as Joshua shepherded God's people. David is, is given the task of shepherding my people Israel, 2 Samuel 5. So a common thing for the uh, leaders in Israel to be referred to as shepherds, whether we're talking about kings or prophets or priests. But if you've read the Old Testament, you understand there was radical unfaithfulness to the task. These leaders would ignore God's people's needs and lead them into blatant idolatry. And they would exploit them for their own personal gain and neglect the flock. So there was severe judgment pronounced upon these leaders. Woe to you, a statement of stinging judgment. And so God, through the prophets, told that he would directly assume the responsibilities over Israel. And he promises to send a new shepherd who would be the greatest of all shepherds. He would have a distinct mark coming from the line of David. Malachi prophesied of it, and Matthew 2 shows the fulfillment that out of Bethlehem a ruler will come, and he will shepherd my people Israel. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, David's greater son, who would come as the ultimate shepherd of his people. And Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. A text like 1 Peter chapter 5 and the understanding of, of the task and the responsibilities to the elders, man, it's, it's a good admonition, correction for the elders of this church today. Uh, Chad, Kevin, Aaron, Blaine, myself, uh, we're always encouraged and corrected when we come to these texts and are reminded of such things. Uh, for those of you who are men in the congregation that feel the call towards church leadership, that's a good thing, Timothy is told. If a man desires the position of a pastor, he desires a good thing. And you can learn and hear from the Lord today. But all of us, perhaps, who have placed uh, undue and unrealistic expectations upon our pastors and leaders and have forgotten our duty to submit and to be led by such, it's applicable to us as well today. 
First Peter chapter 5 shows us in verse 1 the task assigned, who it is that's to lead the church. Verses 2 and 3, the task defined, how do they lead the church? And verse 4, the task rewarded, what is their compensation? So verse 1 says, the elders who are among you, I exhort. This isn't speaking of old people. That's not exactly what it's referring to. Sometimes it's older people, but it refers to leaders. And in the Old Testament, it never specifies um, age as much as it specifies maturity. In the Old Testament or the New, spiritual maturity, a council of men who would provide leadership for a particular group of people. Sometimes it was religious, sometimes it was secular. And under the direction of Jesus, the apostles built upon what had been Familiar, And this would become the regular model for the leadership in local congregations uh, for covenanted believers in the New Testament. This was the apostolic pattern of church government, not the Episcopal model, which was a governing body external to the church that bore authority over the church, passing its directives down to the church. Not that there's not good relationships between having other churches. Calvary Chapel has an affiliation where we know these guys are in the trenches with us. We're like-minded. We serve one another. And there's accountability there. But we don't answer to one another in our leadership. Nor a congregational model where the entire membership functions as the governing body, as a democracy would. Things voted on by the congregation. If 52 people want green carpet and 32 want blue, that we're going with green instead. It's not exactly how the church is run in the New Testament. But rather we see leaders, a group of recognized men from within the congregation, appointed and set apart to provide full pastoral oversight, leadership, direction. The New Testament calls them elders or pastors or shepherds or bishops or overseers. Uh, Those words are all used interchangeably. In fact, in our text today, it says, to the elders among you, be pastors or shepherd the flock of God, serving as overseers or bishops, the word is. They are all used interchangeably, even in Acts chapter 20. Now, as we look at the early church, just looking at wherever there's elders mentioned, looking at the structure of what was going on in the early church, how there were commands to function as leadership, there's patterns that arise as we just scan all of them. And for the sake of time to keep the message at 47 minutes tops, we can't read every passage through. You know me, I would love to do that. Just can't do it. You guys would actually kill me. I know it. But if you would understand this is a reference you can go to to look and you will draw the same conclusions just by simple observation. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27, a prophet Agabus stands up and shows that there's going to be a famine. And so each disciple, according to his ability, determined to send relief to those people. And they did send that relief to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. A couple of things that we see here is it's assumed that these were men responsible for the financial affairs of the congregation because money was given to them. Secondly, we don't read of one elder or one pastor, but a group of them operating in a plurality. We see a similar thing in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. After there'd been persecution on the missionary journey, uh, they appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting commending them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now, we see in Acts 14, men appointed to a task that function in plurality, not just one elder, not just one pastor, but a plurality, and that this was the established pattern in each 
church. In every church, Acts 14, 23 says, in Acts 15, when we see the debate about circumcision and if it's necessary for salvation, it's a great debate that happens among the apostles and among the church leaders and among the elders. Uh, and we see from Acts chapter 15, 1 and 2, all the way through Acts 16, verse 4, that the elders were a recognized group of men who were leaders in each local church. Paul recognized that authority and he even he submitted to it. They functioned in a plurality. They were vitally connected, and we especially see this in this passage. They were vitally connected to the doctrinal integrity of the church. That's something that tells us what are elders to be about. They are to be about protecting doctrine, preaching the word of God, teaching the word of God, and in truth. Um, they are decision-making body in the congregation. We see in Acts 15 and 16 as well. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Let's go ahead and flip there together, and I know we have it on the screen as well. Here's one we'll, we'll go through a little more slowly. Paul's on his way down to Jerusalem, and as he's uh, traveling from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and called for the elders of the church in Ephesus. And then down in verse 28, he said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. Six things we see in this text. These, are eld these elders are a recognized group of people within the church of Ephesus. There's not one, but plurals. They function in a plurality. There is the responsibility to exercise oversight. And that's been given to them by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers, Paul says. This has been given to them by the Holy Spirit. They are pastors of the church. As he says, shepherd or pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, shows the value of the church there. And they are the guardians of the doctrinal integrity of the church. Savage wolves are going to come in among you and they are going to deceive. And so elders protect doctrinal integrity. So we have this these patterns that are laid out in almost every reference to elders. Philippians 1.1, Paul introduces himself to the Philippians there, and he writes the letter to all the saints who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So these are overseers who are a recognized group within the church. They function in a plurality. And then we see another group, another office there of leaders within the church called deacons or diakonos or servants. We've studied much about deacons in the last uh, few months. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, it's in this pastoral epistle that the qualifications for elders and deacons are laid out. Don't have time to go through them today, but the big distinction is that elders have the function of being able to teach. Both of them are to have functional qualifications, and both offices also have moral uh, qualifications as well. This second office that's mentioned, these servants, these men who possess a qualified life are also called deacons, which means servant or minister. Uh, recently in 1 Corinthians, we saw the household of Stephanos and how um, his household gave themselves or literally addicted themselves to the ministry of the saint. He was one of the first converts in Achaia, 
And he and his whole home laid their lives down for ministering to the people. It's the word deaconing. And he was a one who was a refreshment to the Apostle Paul. We'll get into that later. I kind of jumped the gun and did a little spoiler alert. But anyways, uh, deacons are a separate office than elders who ease the pressure and burden from the elders of practical matters so that the elders can fulfill a ministry of prayer and studying and, and teaching the word of God. Deacons are focused more, though not entirely, on the practical needs of the church, while elders are focused more on the spiritual needs of the church. Deacons are men of good character and of good reputation. They are full of the Holy Spirit, Acts 6 tells us, full of wisdom, full of faith. 1 Timothy tells us that those who serve well as deacons obtain great boldness and a great standing in the faith. And you see that in church history. Two of the first deacons that are ever mentioned in Acts chapter 6 become the first martyrs and the first missionaries in the early church. So just to encourage you, what an incredible thing it is to be a servant in the church, whether you're the office of deacon or not. Be a servant. Be using your gift. God uses that to create a, a boldness in you. Uh, it's so cool to see Adam Barney, you know, start begin to come to the church about three years ago, maybe four years ago. And... Um, he just began serving, and pretty soon he's like preaching the gospel to his whole family. And it was just so neat. As we're somehow there's this connection between serving and boldness of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. And so, uh, slight variation in the offices practical helps versus teaching and praying capacities. First um, Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule. Be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may fear. Five things we see in this text. The elders function in plurality. The elders oversee the church. They direct the affairs of the church and lead the church. Notice among the elders that there may be some or one whose responsibilities are devoted mostly entirely to the work of preaching and teaching. In the original text, it means here is a man who works at the point of exhaustion in preaching and teaching. It's the counterpart to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul refers to the teaching pastors who are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Paul told Timothy there in first, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, that if they're faithful to the task, they are worthy of double honor and that they're not beyond accountability. Though if there's an accusation to come, there better be good validation behind that accusation. And if somebody is in sin, they're to be rebuked in front of the rest of the elders to keep holiness in the office. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 uh, Titus is told to set in order things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded. And then it goes on, Titus gets a list of qualifications for those elders. Something that we see in this Titus passage is that a congregation is considered incomplete without functioning elders. These were men who were appointed to the task by other spiritual leaders. They didn't just take it upon themselves. These men function in a plurality, and these men must possess certain moral, spiritual, and ministerial qualifications. James chapter 5, verse 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, a recognized group of people within a local body functioning in a plurality, and this function includes praying for those who are physically ill. So as we go back to our text today, we have elders among this group who are exhorted by Peter, who is just humbly just says, I'm a fellow elder. You know, I'm a witness of the suffering of Christ. I'm a partaker of the glory to be revealed. And I exhort you in the midst of a, is a, in the midst of a corrupt, depraved society that Peter wrote from, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. There is this need for leadership within the church, even though Peter also tells us that there's a priesthood of believers and that there's every person is to be using their gifts and serving one another. It doesn't negate the, the clear need for clearly defined pastoral leadership within the church. We need to remember that Jesus is the chief shepherd and it's his church. He is the senior pastor. Who's in charge around here? It's not Rory, as many people think. If anything, we all, we all function as a plurality of leaders and as the elders. We make decisions together. But even trumping that is the senior pastor, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. We are under shepherds underneath him. Ephesians 4 says it's Jesus that is the head of the body. Now, there's freedom within these parameters of leadership, but the parameters are clear. And the elders are to eld. The leaders are to lead. There's a task defined in verses 2 and 3 that they are to shepherd the flock that is among them. They are to tend as a shepherd. They are to lead and feed and heed. They are to protect the sheep by prayer, by exhortation, by government, by teaching, by example. Leading by example, just as Jesus did. A pastor is not to be a cowboy that drives from the rear, but a shepherd who leads from the front. Just as David wrote of the Lord being his shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear evil for you are with me and your rod and your staff don't beat the tar out of me but they comfort me. You feed me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. There's a feeding. There's a tending. As Jesus told Peter after the resurrection, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Hey, then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then feed or pasture my sheep. Part of the responsibility of the elders to you, the pastors to you, is to give you God's word as a regular diet. As Paul tells Timothy in a pastoral epistle, preach the word. Be ready in season or out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. In Acts 20, 20 and 26 and 27, Paul says, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught it publicly from house to house. I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of the word of God. That is what you should desire from your pastor. Not the buildings or the bucks or whatever else is going on. A pastor that will lead, heed, tend, feed. You want to note in 1 Peter chapter 5 that it's the flock of God. This flock is Christ. That shows us the seriousness of the task. It's determined by the one who owns the sheep. This is Jesus' 
fold. It's Jesus' flock. And so there's a weightiness upon your elders. They feel this weight. They always talk about this weight. We pray and we meet and we cry and we meet and we pray and we meet and we search the scriptures and we search the scriptures because we care for you. You are Christ's. You are Christ's. And because you are Christ's, having this job, having this function is so incredibly honorable. It's an honor to do this. Spurgeon would frequently say to the men of his pastor's college, if God calls you to this work, don't stoop to be a king. What an incredible privilege it is to shepherd the people of God. Serving as overseers, exercising oversight. It's the Greek word episkopos or episcopal. Bishop performing duties. The duties of the elders that you have, excuse me, that we have towards you is to lead, feed, heed, protect, shepherd you and your children, lead a congregation, teach, feed with gifts and resources God's granted, protect you from anyone who would do you harm, pray for you, encourage you, comfort you, weep with you and rejoice with you, serve you. And the manner is shown to us that it's not to be done by compulsion, but willingly. Not because I have to, but because I get to. Because I get to. Chapter 5, verse 2 shows us our motive, that it's not for dishonest gain. Pastor is not to be greedy for money. Jesus shows us the distinction in John chapter 10, that there's shepherds over the sheep, and the ones that only do it for the money and, and run away when the wolves come, they're called hirelings. They're hired men. And Jesus says, don't be a hired man. Be a true shepherd. Follow the example of the good shepherd. Not to do it for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Eagerly. We see the method that they're to lead in in verse 3. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now there is an aspect of eldership and pastoring that is leading and it is Ruling. It's the language that's used all throughout the New Testament, but it's not to be used like a rod of iron. Jesus tells us that in Mark chapter 10, when the disciples are fighting about who gets to be the best in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, you know what? That's how the world does things. They want to rule. They want to beat each other with a rod of iron. They want to rule that way. He says, follow my example. The son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The leading of a shepherd, the leading of a pastor is one where he lays his life down for the sheep, where he serves and leads by servant leadership. This leading that we see in the scripture is so often fought against by the world and by our flesh. There's ruling that's mentioned that parents are to lead their children, husbands are to lead their wives, governments are to lead their citizens, pastors and elders are to lead the congregation. And even though that there can be abusive leadership, and I'm sure many churches, many of you probably been a part of churches where the leadership was abusive, but that abuse doesn't take away a proper use. We strive in our eldership to lead by example and to follow Jesus's example as leading. We see in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, that that even though there was abuse of, of power at some point in church history, it doesn't take away the, the ruling and the leading that's to take place in the local church. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you 
and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sakes over you, admonish you. We're going to study the necessity for church discipline in a little bit. And often that comes, first of all, through church leaders. There's admonishment. There's signs of definitive and authoritative leadership. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Hebrews 13.17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So there is leading, there is even a ruling aspect, but it's to be ruled with, with love and with service. Peter has a particular group of people in view here as he speaks about shepherding those entrusted to you. How do we know as pastors who we are responsible to tend and to heed and to pray for and to go after? Is it someone from First Baptist who's gone there for 50 years that falls off the boat and goes out? Is that who we go after? Is it just anybody in town that calls themselves a Christian? The context of all of this leading and the context of all of this following in the New Testament is within the local church. 90% of the references uh, to these things are within a local church context. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, we see the task rewarded. These faithful elders have compensation, compensation of a crown that will not fade away in, in future glory. There's much to say about all of these things but uh, we don't have time to get into it. So you can get online and listen to the His Church series and specifically listen to the uh, Organizing Under Qualified Leadership part of the church series. But you know, part of doing this series, we also wanted to look at where the Lord has had us in the last year through the First Corinthians teaching. And we saw that this principle of qualified leaders leading is seen all throughout the book, peppered all throughout the book in in 1 Corinthians, we see that there was actually pride over which leader people were following, and, and the Corinthian church were corrected for that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 21 through 4, 1, the Corinthians are, are corrected, and they're told, especially in 4, 1, let a man consider us, Paul, Apollos, Peter, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, we see how God has structured leadership within genders, that there's biblical genders and their rules and their roles and their orders. In 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 and 3 speak to that, that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And in the scriptures, we see that it's men that are to shepherd. It's men that are to lead in these ways. It doesn't mean that women aren't valuable. It doesn't mean that they're not smarter. It doesn't mean, this is just the way God designed this. It's the way that God has laid it out in the scriptures, that there is order. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, we even see that in the testing of prophecies, that's an authoritative role, and it's to be done by the men. And so we did in-depth studies on this in 1 Corinthians. It's hard to just throw that out as a, oh, and by the way, remember the role of women in the church. It's a wonderful thing. There's the women in our church and in every church in the kingdom of heaven have fantastic, incredible value, and just as much as men, they just have different function in their creation. 
In 1 Corinthians 16, we see again the household of Stephanus, uh, that he is and his family are servants. They have willingly devoted themselves or addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. And Paul says, you Corinthians need to submit to such a one and everyone who works and labors with us. And this is speaking of a deacon, someone who is a minister, that there's to be submission to uh, these men. Our second main point for the day is that not only are we to organize under qualified leadership, but we have an obligation to be disciplined and to discipline others towards holiness. The local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and they are disciplined for holiness. We have the obligation in light of the grace of God to be disciplined toward holiness and to be part of disciplining others towards holiness. Uh, let me read to you from a book on church, uh, uh, on the church ecclesiology. Church discipline is one of the most misunderstood and yet most desperately needed ministries of the church, but one required of us in scripture. Sadly, what most people think of when they hear church discipline is excommunication, the final stage of the biblical process. Excommunication is what happens when discipline fails to result in repentance and reconciliation. This misunderstanding plagues most, most discussions and practices, sabotaging the grace of God that can come through church discipline. Biblical discipline is first and foremost training. Discipline and disciple are from the same root word. Simply to be a disciple of Jesus means to live a disciplined life and humbly receive discipline as needed. And so when we think of church discipline, we think of times that we've had on Wednesday nights where we call the church together and someone has uh, rejected a call to repentance for time and time and time again. And so it's finally time to follow Jesus' example of church discipline and, and bring it before the body. But really, that's the end result that we hope never has to come. Discipline happens when we go to, dis to coffee together, when we, to the coffee together, when we're, you know, on the lake in the boat getting ready to wakeboard, when we're just living life together. There's things we sharpen each other. Sometimes we don't even know we're doing it and we're correcting one another. As we're living out gospel truth, as we're using the scriptures as our authority, as we're organizing together in core groups and discipleship groups and, and uh, various you know, discipleship groups in the church, uh, just simply we have the scriptures and we just, you know, hey, just do you know that your life is going this direction or your thought process is going this direction, but the scripture would lead us in this direction? Just simple, short, quick accounts with each other. And you know, the more deep your understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus is, the more you realize that discipline is necessary. That it's much more than Jesus Christ died on the cross for you to go to heaven, which is the gospel. But there's so much more to the gospel. That God has come to save us out of darkness and transferred us into the marvelous light. And the Holy Spirit is working in, in through sanctification to be vessels for his glory in this world. There's, there's so much to be said about the gospel. And you realize that we're to be living this life out in community with one another, sharpening one another and exhorting one another. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 tells it, uh, 12 through 15 says that we're to exhort one another daily. And so much more as we see the day approaching. That's to be a daily thing, to be spurred on. 
And if you've ever ridden a horse or been a cowboy, you know that the spur in the side of the horse, that's not pleasant for the moment for the horse. But they get over it real quick as you spurred them on in the right direction. Most often, discipline occurs informally and privately. A brother or sister in Christ sins, and another brother or sister with love quietly addresses the matter with Scripture. Discipleship exists in part because... People, including Christians, are prone to self-deception. That's why the apostles again and again and again warn Christians to not be deceived or let no one deceive himself. Or uh, evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Or um, it's easy to say we have no sin and deceive ourselves. Even our very desires are deceitful, Ephesians 4 says. We've been using the phrase for a couple years now that in our discipleship groups, we check each other's blind spots. Just like on the freeway, you're driving down. You don't just want to trust your own mirror. You want to turn around and look. There's something that you haven't seen. John Piper says, eternal security is a community project. It's a congregational affair. For all of us to make it there on that day, we need each other, sharpening each other, encouraging each other, calling each other out on our garbage, showing each other the word of God in truth and in love, and moving on in repentance and in reconciliation. Proverbs 18 and 27 and 12, they all speak of uh, getting out of an isolation state where you're off by yourself and allowing friends to speak truth into your life. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3 will be one of our big texts for this section today where it says in Hebrews chapter 12, 3 through 11, for consider himself who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. When it comes to discipline, we want to keep our eyes on Jesus and his great love for us. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Note the repeated word son here. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate. Or maybe your translation uses the harsh word bastards and not sons. Chrysostom, the first century golden tongue preacher, as his nickname means, says, since then not to be chastised is a mark of bastardy, we ought not to refuse, but rejoice in chastisement as a mark of our genuine sonship. The fact that we're corrected on little fine levels all the way up to stern rebuke shows that God loves us enough to sanctify us, enough to bring us out of darkness, enough to get us pushed towards holiness and holy right living. He goes on to say, the author of Hebrews in 12.9, Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? So it's the argument of the lesser and the greater. We respect our human father's discipline. How about the Lord's discipline? J.B. Phillips says, Now obviously no chastening seems pleasant at the time. It is in fact most unpleasant. 
Yesterday, I went on a walk with my family, and Lainey and Russell were on their bikes, and Russell's, you know, getting to be really fast and zipping around and stuff, and, and, uh, and Lainey's still on training wheels. Just a great time going along, but on our walk, just kept having to correct with, you know, some traffic hazards <laughs> that I would see, especially Russell as he's zipping around, you know. And as we walked around the corner up Yellow Pine, we came to that corner that everybody in our church lives on. <laughs> uh, there, I think it's Sugar Pine and Yellow Pine, Nate Wales, Dustin Gossett, the newbies, and stand there to chit-chat. And um, Russell, I watch him, he goes across the street without looking both ways. And I was like, oh man, I'm gonna need to talk with him about that. And then his little sister, Lainey, begins to follow him on her bike. And a car comes around that horrible corner there and just almost, and I, I saw it and I, just all I could do is yell, Laney, 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 and praise the Lord, the car stopped, Laney stopped, but you guys know how that is as parents, where you are just watching the end come, and you guys know how much I adore my little girl, and there in the midst of a bunch of different people's houses that I know, I just was very fervently chastising my son for leading his little sister across the road without looking, and the whole way back home, I'm just just terrified and I'm lecturing probably loud enough for the whole neighborhood to hear and I'm this is called a road cars own this you don't come out here without looking you know just just zealously fervently just shook up that my little girl almost got hit Russell made it across Laney almost didn't and just was sick all afternoon just just was continually correcting and putting up YouTube videos on the TV screen of see bike safety bike safe, bike smart. Russell, how's it go? Bike safe, bike smart. Laney, bike safe, bike smart. You know, let's watch this video again. Here's a deputy with a puppet teaching you bike safety and just correcting. And I just told him it's because I love you that I'm freaking out right now. I don't want you splattered on the side of the road. Even last night I'm laying in bed and I just was sick. I just kept picturing Laney going across the road and I just had to go in and lay on her bed and just hold her. And then I went to Russell's room and just held him which led to a night terror later on, but we'll, we'll get into that later. <clears throat> but, you know, it just it was because I love them. I just lay it, love. Love led to the chastisement. And within the church, because the Lord loves us and because we love you, there will be times of discipline. You can count on it. There will be times of speaking into your life in this church. If you say you're a born-again Christian and that this is your church, I encourage you to welcome it, as Chrysostom said. Welcome it. Just little things. And look at the scripture. Look at the scripture. Look at the scripture. And you, you need to do that in each other's lives and in mine as well. Our eternal security is a family affair. It's a congregational affair. Jesus lays out the process in Matthew 18 that it begins on that small discipleship level. One-on-one. -on -one. If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And the purpose of it is not to embarrass them or show them what's up. It's to gain the brother. And if they weren't here, you won't hear you. He leads to the next step and the next step and the next step. Paul had the example of church discipline as we want to always come back to uh, where the Lord has had us in the last year in 1 Corinthians. As in 1 Corinthians, there was a, an issue going on where a, father, uh, a son had his father's Wife. Now, this is in the midst of just a pagan moral cesspool called Corinth. Hard to escape the tentacles of sexual immorality. Not only did the Torah forbid this illicit union, but Roman law forbid this kind of uh, 
sexual immorality as well. And so when Paul addresses it, he corrects the church and then he corrects uh, the man who's in the midst of the sin where he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who's done this deed might be taken away from you. So there's this illicit union, just sickening sexual gross sin taking place. And the church was puffed up and proud that they were so full of unity that anybody was welcome. No matter what's going on, they can just continue on in it and just come in here and feel welcome and loved on. So often love has become an idol in our culture rather than remembering that not only is God a God of love and we want to define our love by the Bible and God's definition of love, but God is also a holy God. So we stand for love and we stand for holiness in love. It's loving to the watching world that they might see Christ's transforming power as sin is confronted. Alistair Begg says, any church that doesn't confront sin that it knows is within its ranks totters on the brink of spiritual extinction. The Bible says it and history confirms it. John Piper says, tolerating sin is sinful. Paul goes on to say, I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who's so done this deed. So just so you know, there's more to the Bible than just Matthew 7, 1, judge not. Okay. There's actually judge so in the Bible as well. There's times where we are to be judging and inspecting And Paul is condemning this deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. When you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this very strong, powerful moment where the Lord is present. And Matthew 18 says, in that moment, when you come together as a church and deliver this person over to Satan, that is when Jesus says, when two or more are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. There's a binding that takes place here. And that's the context of what Jesus is talking about. There's something that's happening in the spiritual realm where these people are delivered to Satan, as Paul says of Hymenaeus and Alexander, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Even Job experienced that. The Lord delivered Job over to Satan. And, he, and Job himself says, the result of God's gracious purpose is that with my eyes, I see you, O Lord, and I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Ananias and Sapphira were another group. Their, their flesh was destroyed that uh, their soul would be saved. And so as we go on, there's, there's a lot that Paul says there. And we're going to close down with, let's see the effect of what happens when people are obedient to God's command to discipline and disciple one another. Let's go over to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians 2, 5. If anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment and this church discipline time, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. And so we see the goal with this man is confession of sin and repentance through the deep sorrow of lost fellowship. Verse 8 says, therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Remember the heart of church discipline is to gain the brother. Paul says, for to this end I also wrote that I might 
put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. And you know what? Church discipline is the time of the Lord testing the church. The times where it has come down to like an excommunication type meeting as this church. We believe that we're walking through it with the scripture, with the Lord's backing. Jesus says, there I am in the midst of you. And there always will come a war within the church. You have no right to confront this person in their sin. Only Jesus can can judge, you know, and going on and on. And, and, you know, Paul tells us that the Lord's testing you. Are you going to let this stuff keep going on? Are you going to battle for holiness within the church? Second Corinthians 7 verses 8 and 12 tell us more about how this situation ended up. So we see that that brother repented and then we see the church repented. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you may suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of this world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. So correction leads to wonderful, wonderful things. We ought not fear it. We ought to welcome it. Much to say, many scriptures to go through, many examples to show, but as we have the worship team come up, to close us, 48 minutes and 49 seconds. Push stop on my stopwatch. I want to just read Jude. Does this count? Okay, start. Here we go. Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To our Savior alone, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Praise God, he is able to keep us from stumbling and to, on that day, present us faultless before his throne, glorifying and worshiping him. And the method by which he does it is in the local body context. Of all of these things we've been learning, our duties and responsibilities and privileges and obligations that we have to the local church by the grace of God and through the grace of God. And so as we come to the communion table today, we want to remember the grace of God, that it was he who spilled his precious blood willingly to purchase the church unto himself, to purchase the church universal and here locally at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. When we go come forward, you can take the elements of communion and return to your seat. And Jesus says to remember, remember my body that was broken. Remember my blood that was shed. These things have sealed the new covenant. The new covenant that, that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will take out of your heart a, a heart of stone and I will put in you a heart of flesh that can now know me and can now obey me and want to obey me. And my love for you is unconditional. I've bought and I've paid for you, the church and the individuals within the church with my precious blood. 
Come forward as you're ready today. Take the elements. You can partake in your own time, but thank the Lord Jesus for his indescribable gift, for his wonderful grace that has brought us into the household of faith, that has given us nobility. And in light of our passage today, that nobility leads us to many wonderful responsibilities.